came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien, and today is Wednesday the 1st of September, and this is your September Sky Guide. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers, and he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So, let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your guy guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again, Ian, and here we are. We're ready for our September sky guide. Can you tell us, Ian, what's up in the sky for September? Lots of lovely things. September, of course, is for us in the Southern Hemisphere, the beginning of spring. So we've got the spring stars. But most of all, we've got our friends Venus and Mercury and Jupiter and Saturn, who were beginning to put on a display in August, continuing to put on a fantastic display. And so we'll have a really good view of some bright planets during September. We'll start off with what's happening with the moon. So September the 7th, the new moon. September the 14th is the first quarter. September the 21st is the full moon. And September the 29th is the last quarter. So for those of you who are wanting really dark skies, up until about September the 14th, you've got good dark skies. From then on, the waxing moon makes it harder to see the dimmer stars. And then after September the 29th, you've got dark skies in the early evening again. 
Perigee is on September the 11th, and Apogee, with the moon's furthest from the Earth, is September the 27th. So I promised you bright planets. Let's start with Mercury. Now, Mercury is currently quite easy to see in the evening twilight around about 30 minutes after sunset to about an hour after sunset. It continues to rise in the evening sky and getting easier to see heading towards Venus. And September is the best month this year to see Mercury. The combination of Mercury being a, a, a good elongation from the sun and that the uh, ecliptic will be uh, almost straight up and down for most of us uh, gives us our best view of the uh, little rapid planet. So, in fact, for, for uh, most of September, Mercury will be visible after astronomical twilight when the sky is completely dark. So this is going to be a really good time to see Mercury. Now, Mercury reaches its uh, greatest elevation from the sun. That's when it's furthest in, in the orbit from the sun as it seems from us, on the 16th. So at astronomical twilight, which is 90 minutes after sunset and the sky is fully dark, it's going to be eight degrees above the horizon. That's about one and a half hand spans. So yep. really good. And of course, easily visible well before this. If you can uh, crank out your telescopes at this time, uh, Mercury has a distinct half moon shape, but you need to have a, a really good magnification to see this, uh, Mercury being quite small. After the 16th, Mercury begins to head towards the horizon, but it does it very slowly. So around about this, from the 16th on to about the 20th, you're not really going to see much difference in how high Mercury gets. And so by the end of the month, Mercury is sitting around about astronomical twilight, but it's still readily visible at nautical twilight. And it's going to be a distinct crescent shape in a telescope, but again, you'll probably need a, a relatively grunty telescope in order to make out Mercury's crescent shape because it's, a, it's a, uh, quite small. The other challenge, of course, is because Mercury will be relatively low to the horizon, getting your telescope to point down that low to the horizon will be quite a challenge for many people. Yep. So Mercury's not far from the moon on, the, on the, uh, September the 9th, but not, not horribly close, but the, the, the pair will look very nice with uh, Venus above them. Then on the 21st, Mercury is close to the bright star speaker. It's about one and a half finger widths away. Now, this brings us to Venus. Now, Venus is still dominating the evening sky for about 30 minutes after sunset. Uh, I can see it as early five minutes after sunset. Uh, of course, I've been watching Venus for quite some time, and I have a number of uh, landmarks I can use to locate Venus, like telegraph poles or the chimneys above the neighbour's roof gives me a, a, a good pointer to find Venus. But if you are watching Venus over a while and get yourself a good landmark like a telephone pole or a tree, then you can uh, use that to progressively look for Venus earlier and earlier after sunset. And it's now setting fully two hours after the sky is fully dark. So that's astronomical twilight, 90 minutes. So you can see it almost two hours after astronomical twilight. So really, really obvious, really, really spectacular in the night sky. And it's going to have some interesting meetups later on. Yep, it's fantastic. It, oh, but isn't it ever? 
So in terms of interesting things happening with Venus, on the 10th, Venus is close to the thin crescent moon. At this time, the pair will fit into the field of view of 10 by 50 binoculars, so you'll have a good view of that. And this is also a good time to try and see Venus during daylight. Now, Venus is so bright it can be seen in the daylight, but the, usually the difficulty is, is knowing where to look and trying to find a bright speck in all that swimming blue. Also now, Venus is over 40 degrees from the sun. So now you can look at Venus during the daytime and have a, and have a really good assurance that you won't accidentally look at the sun. So on the 10th, find yourself a nice place where you've got the sun behind a solid object or a wall or a building. As I said, as the Venus is 40 degrees away from the sun, it's fairly easy to keep, keep your vision away from it but take every precaution. You can damage your eyesight badly and potentially go blind from looking too close to the sun. But anyway, you stick the sun behind a, a building or a wall or something really solid. Don't try to use your hands or a tree where the branches will, will move and uh, let the light through. And then look for the moon. Now, because the moon's a thin crescent, it may be a little bit hard to see and hard to find, but search around to rough, around roughly the north and you should be able to see the moon. You might need uh, binoculars to hunt around to make, make sure you know where the moon is. But once again, make incredibly sure that you can't accidentally see the sun and it's behind something really impenetrable. Yep. So once you've found the moon, Venus will be about a handstand above the moon. And if you concentrate on the moon, you should see Venus pop out and you'll wonder why you never saw it before. Again, you might need the, uh, the a pair of binoculars just to convince yourself you know where you're looking in the right place. But you'll be at once, once you're looking in the right place, Venus will pop out and you'll be able to see it quite clearly. Great. Now, Venus is going to continue to climb higher into the sky. So it's going to pass through the constellation of Virgo towards the bright star Speaker, then uh, onto Libra. Now, Venus is actually closer to Speaker on the 6th. That's before its encounter with the Moon. And it's only going to be about one and a half fingerlets from Speaker. So that will look very nice in the evening. Venus then continues, as I said, it continues on through Virgo up into Libra. And then it's going to be close to the bright star which rejoices in the name of Zuvenel Gubi in Libra. That's Alpha Librae. And the pair fit into field of view of 10 by 50 binoculars. Unlike Speaker, where Speaker is just a bright dot, Zuvenel Gubi is a double star. And when you get Venus and Zuvenel Gubi in the pair of binoculars, you'll be able to separate the, the two stars that form the double star and look quite nice. Lovely. Not only lovely, you're going to have the pair of Alpha Libra and Venus, and then below that, uh, Mercury and Speaker are, are close uh, after uh, Mercury's closest approach to Speaker. And above that, you've got the, the bright red star Antares in, in uh, Scorpio. So that will be a really excellent evening sight. And again, I'll emphasise again that for most of the month, Mercury, Venus, and Speaker form a distinct line in the sky. Although before the sixth, 
its Mercury Venus speaker after the sixth its Mercury speaker Venus. Yep. Now that that's the early evening. That's our bright planets, fleet Mercury and uh, only slightly uh, less fleet Venus. Uh, now Earth is an equinox. Uh, it's, a, it's spring in the southern hemisphere and autumn in the northern hemisphere on the 23rd. At this time, the sun rises due east and sets due west, and the day and night are roughly equal. But because it's at equinox and you've got the sun rising almost due east and setting almost due west, the ecliptic is basically vertical. And this means that Mercury and Venus are well separated from the horizon. In other apparitions this uh, year, the Mercury has been quite low to the horizon, even when it's been very far from the sun. So even though it's, it's getting to, to 20 or so degrees away from the sun, it'll only scrape the horizon because the ecliptic is very low to the horizon. But now the ecliptic is near vertical, so Mercury is well separated from the horizon. Excellent time to view both it and Venus. Very good. Indeed. Now let's go back to our friends Jupiter and Saturn. Jupiter and Saturn have been prominent in the evening skies last month, and they remain prominent in the evening skies this month. And they, of course, they form a line with Saturn above Jupiter. And, and Jupiter is now really, really obvious. Now the pair came to opposition last month, where they are the biggest and brightest. But uh, unlike Mars and Venus, the size of, of Jupiter and Saturn do not change dramatically with opposition. Uh, as I mentioned last month. And so for all of this month, you're not going to see too much difference in their size, brightness, and it'll still be really excellent viewing both with the unaided eye, binoculars and small telescopes even. Excellent. So telescopically, Jupiter will be best in the late evening. Uh, this month, uh, this runs from about 11pm to 10pm as uh, this at, for the uh, start of observing when it's highest above the northern horizon. Uh, Saturn, of course, is best to observe earlier, a bit earlier than that. Again, both planets are best viewed when they're at their highest in the northern skies, when they're furthest above the murk of the atmosphere and the turbulence of the atmosphere. While it's spring, it's still uh, relatively cool, so the air's are still relatively still, so you should be able to get some good telescopic viewing in. So Saturn, best times, beginning of the month around about 10pm, later in the month around about 9pm. Jupiter, beginning of the month, best time around about 11pm. By the end of the month, it's about 10pm. Very good. And if you've been following my, uh, my Twitter and Facebook, I've been having fun uh, imaging both uh, Saturn and Jupiter uh, and with my telescope, and they've been absolutely brilliant to watch. Yep. So, so, so both of them can be easily seen from about astronomical twilight. Again, that's an hour and a half after sunset. Uh, and so you can basically walk out into your backyard or your front yard, uh, turn around and look and see them uh, without having to uh, wait for the sky to get much higher. So as soon as it gets dark, you'll be able to see them. But also at astronomical twilight, I mentioned this last month, but I'll mention it again, we can enjoy the sight of bright Venus uh, in the west, mirroring bright Jupiter in the east. And this time they're almost at the same height above the horizon. So as soon as it's fully dark, look west, you'll see bright Venus. If you've got a low horizon, you might even be able to see Mercury below it. 
then look east, you'll see a bright Jupiter, almost at the same height. And above that, not quite as bright, but still prominent Saturn. So by, uh, by about mid-month, you should be able to see the pair of bright planets, Mercury and Venus to the west and Jupiter and Saturn to the east uh, when the sky is together, when the sky is fully dark. Now, as with uh, Mercury and Venus, uh, Jupiter and Saturn are visited uh, by the moon, creating a nice little planet dance. So on the 16th, the waxing moon forms a line with Saturn and Jupiter. On the 17th, the moon is between Jupiter and Saturn, although it's a bit closer to Saturn this time. On the 18th, the waxing moon is close to Jupiter, and this time the pair fit easily into the pair of field of view of 10 by 50 binoculars, and probably also some of the uh, wide field telescope lenses. And if you've got 10 by 50 binoculars, you should be able to see the moons of Jupiter at the same time as you're seeing the moon. It should look very nice. Lovely. And then on the night, it, it will be very lovely indeed. And then on the 19th, the waxing moon again forms a line with Jupiter and Saturn. So you're in for several nights of nice lineups with the bright planets and the moon. Fantastic. September's looking like a fantastic month to step outside, look up. If the kids are home in lockdown with you, take them out too. Indeed, it will be a very nice uh, time. But uh, the, the 18th is also a good time to see if you can see Jupiter in the daylight. Now, Jupiter is not as bright as Venus, but it can be potentially seen in daylight as well. So with the sun almost setting, Jupiter and the moon are high enough in the east to be seen easily. So this is round, pretty close to sunset. So, of course, the sky is going to be darker in, in the east anyway and making it easier to see. So the moon, of course, being almost full, is very easy to see. And Jupiter is about three finger widths to the left. Now, you may need uh, binoculars to help you see Jupiter, but it will be very easily seen in, in binoculars. But you may be surprised to find that once you've, you've got a, a clear idea of where Jupiter is, you can actually see it relatively easy, or easily in the, the daylight sky, even though, of course, with the sun setting, the sky is darker, it's still, but it's still officially daylight. Sadly, tragically, you can't see Saturn in the daylight just uh, your eyes, although if you've got a, a go-to scope, you can see Saturn in the daylight with a telescope. But once the sky is fully dark, Saturn is, again, uh, quite obvious. It's currently an area very poor of stars, so it's clearly the brightest thing apart from Jupiter uh, in the eastern and northeastern sky. And in the telescope, uh, Saturn's rings are obvious. Uh, as I said last month, they're beginning to close up, uh, ahead of being edge on in 2025, but they're still glorious. Um, as Saturn moves away from uh, opposition, when it's directly between uh, or the, the Earth, you have the Sun, Earth, Saturn in a direct line. Now that it's moving away from this direct line, the shadow of Saturn on the rings is becoming more obvious. And that's will look, again, look very nice, even in small telescopes. Now, going back to Jupiter, Jupiter's moons is always a very marvellous thing to see. Last month, we had some very good Jupiter events, one of which I saw accidentally. I was testing out my camera and managed to catch the IO doing a, 
a trans and its shadow doing a transit across the face of Jupiter, even though I wasn't planning or expecting it. So there's lots of these planet events. They're highly dependent on in terms of timing of where you are. So it's best if you use some planetarium software if you're going planning on watching the more interesting Jupiter events. But I think one that we should uh, probably all have a, uh, a go at is the 10th. On the 10th at about midnight for us in the central states and about uh, half past midnight in the uh, eastern states, there's a really interesting setup where Callisto has just reappeared from occultation from behind Jupiter's disks. And about 10 minutes later, it goes into eclipse. Ganymede is on the other side of Jupiter, about to go behind uh, Jupiter's disk, and Europa's shadow is passing across the face of the planet. And that will look really, really good. If you can stay up late at night and have a halfway decent telescope, but even with a four-inch telescope, a four-inch Newtonian, you'll be able to see Callisto appearing and going into eclipse and Ganymede disappearing. So even if you've got a relatively small telescope, you'll be able to see these things and it's well worth watching. What about if someone just had a pair of binoculars and maybe an adapter to stick on their tripod, would they be able to see Callisto through binoculars? Oh, yes, you'll be able to see Callisto and Ganymede, but quite difficult because Jupiter is so bright, you may not be able to catch it as it just comes from behind the disk. What you might, with, with Callisto, what you might see is that you won't be able to see it actually reappearing as such, but you'll see a bright dot begin to move away from the disk of Jupiter and then vanish. Yep. So, and of course, you'll be able to see Ganymede approach and then vanish, but because Jupiter is so bright and the magnifications of your binoculars is not so good, you'll, they'll, they'll vanish a lot earlier than you would, would see them if you're using a telescope, for example. But nonetheless, you'll be able to see them moving about and doing their dance, and it's well worth watching that. Fantastic. Yeah, now, one thing is on the 7th of September, you might be able to see Callisto all by itself. Now, you will need to be in a dark sky site uh, for this, but it may not be general knowledge that many of Jupiter's moons are bright enough to, to have been seen with the unaided eye if they weren't found out by Jupiter's brightness. And this comes from what we were just talking about, about should be able to see Callisto and Ganymede with, uh, with binoculars with that interesting event on the 10th. But as they get closer and closer to Jupiter, because Jupiter's so bright, it'll drown out their light. It'll be a lot harder to see than go behind Jupiter's disk. Yep. But on the 7th, Callisto and Ganymede will be relatively far away from Jupiter's disk. So if you're in a dark sky site, because Callisto is only about magnitude 5 and Ganymede's about magnitude 4, if you find a place where you can just cover Jupiter, find a wall or a pole and you just cover Jupiter, you might just be able to see the the star of Callisto as a, a, a dim dot just off to the right of Jupiter. You might want to use binoculars to see where everything is and then use do your wall thing to see if you can still see it. 
but that's something to to try out to see if you can see Jupiter's moons without the aid of, of binoculars. What a challenge! It it is a challenge, and that, that's around about ten pm Australian Eastern Standard Time, nine thirty Central Time, and eight pm Western Australian Time. Uh, Western Australia is probably still too bright to, to really see uh, Callisto. Fantastic. What else do we need to look out for this month, Ian? Well, if you're up early in the morning, you've got the constellations Orion, Taurus, uh, making your morning happy. Early in the month, you can still see Jupiter and Saturn, although Saturn's uh, beginning to set at astronomical twilight. And by the end of the month, uh, if you're getting up at astronomical twilight, Jupiter will be quite low in the west. In terms of stars, the Milky Way is beginning to slip from the zenith in the early evening. So that's where the centre of the galaxy is. Uh, we've talked about that uh, in detail in previous episodes, so I won't go through that again. But one thing that is happening is that a galaxy is beginning to rise. Now, I, I always talk about how in the Southern Hemisphere we're favoured by having two bright galaxies to see. And they're circumpolar, so they never really set, although hills and trees can get in the way. But in September, the champion of galaxies, the most famous Andromeda galaxy, begins to rise in the early evening. And so it's, it's rising around about 10, but won't really be seen until about midnight from the Southern Hemisphere. Now, in the Southern Hemisphere, it never gets, really gets high. And in September, it's going to be about its highest around about 2 a.m. at the beginning of the month. Uh, visible as a paint fuzzy patch directly above the northern horizon to your, the unaided eyes, unless you're in the bright suburbs. Uh, and in binoculars, it's also uh, a fuzzy patch. Only in telescopes we begin to bring out its uh, characteristic uh, galaxy shape. Interestingly, at the same time as uh, the Andromeda galaxy is at its highest in the north, the 47 Tucana the bright globular cluster that's in the, uh, the small Magellanic Cloud, which is the dwarf companion galaxy to the Milky Way, is also at its highest. So that's a nice juxtaposition. Low on the horizon, barely able to be seen. The, uh, uh, the, the exemplar of all the galaxies we think of when we think of galaxies, you immediately think of the Andromeda galaxy. But to the south, high above the horizon, a bright patch that is featured in the indigenous uh, legends of so many Southern Hemisphere peoples and the fuzzy star at the, in, in the patch that is one of the best globular clusters in the sky. So lots of things to see in the September skies, uh, lots of planet dancing and lots of challenges. Fantastic. What a great month for everyone. Now, Ian, do you have a tangent for us for this month? I most certainly do, and it sort of follows on from some of the things we've been talking about, about classification. So last month I talked about how Venus and other objects have been mistaken for drones and flares and UFOs. Oh, yes. As, but this time I'm going to talk about the confusion between comets and asteroids. Okay. This follows on from the Is Pluto Planet Wars. Now that's sort of flared out and up again, but in a very muted form. And overall, humans have a real problem with fuzzy boundaries. The idea that there might not be a precise boundary between gravel with attitude, well-behaved plants, gas giants and stars 
and that any dividing line we apply is fuzzy and arbitrary is deeply upsetting to many people. And uh, as a biologist, please don't get me started on the species problem. But I'm not going to talk about that. What I'm going to talk about is the asteroid boundary, which people tend to forget a lot about. Now, this is prompted by a discussion from Carl Baddams, who's the director of SOHO, the solar observatory that is constantly monitoring the sun for coronal mass ejections and it happens to have picked up hundreds of comets as part in doing its mission. Yep. Now, this is about the asteroid 2021 pH7. Uh, 21 pH 7, you may have heard of it. Uh, it's a one kilometer object whose orbit takes it down to about just uh, 0.13 astronomical units. That's very close. It's 200 million kilometers from the sun. So it's been, you may have seen uh, headlines such as the sun's new nearest neighbor has been revealed or the sun's new nearest neighbor has been hiding in plain sight. It gets closer to the sun than the planet Mercury and a few other objects. Now, Carl has very interestingly argued that it's not the asteroid with the shortest perihelion path to orbit. That title belongs to an object called 322P Soho. Now, you may be going, okay, wait a second. Doesn't the 322P designation indicate it's a periodic comet? And this is where the whole question rounds about, uh, rolls around, the comet asteroid distinction. Yep. Now, 322P is a comet by its designation, and 221PH7 is designated as an asteroid. However, 322P is called a comet because it was discovered in Soho data and had a cometary tail. Yep. And it came, it came in twice, twice as close to the sun as 2021. PH27. Now, PH uh, 221PH7 uh, was discovered from the ground in, in uh, ground-based telescopes and represents a uh, milestone in discovering uh, objects close to the sun. But let, let's, re, re, uh, let's uh, revisit that distance again. 0.05 AU, 0.13 AU, that's astonishingly close to the sun and it gets really, really hot there. So when you put an asteroid or a comet or whatever the heck you like that close to the sun, what do you think is going to happen? It's going to burn up. And stuff will come off it. Sublimation and comet-like things. So seeing a tail coming off something that's really, really close to the sun does not necessarily indicate it's uh, made of cometary ices, which I'll talk about shortly, oh. but it may be, may be other things. Yep. And so once it gets away from the sun, it shuts off again. Time to be an asteroid again. <laughs> so so has seen a lot of, the, of things like this being classified as comets. So with perihelions inside 0.1 astronomical unit, there's about 100 of these objects. And being, being designated as comets simply because you can see tails of them. But uh, Carl believes that most of them are actually uh, things we would normally classify as asteroids getting fried. Again, this brings home the, the, the what I talked about before, where making this dividing line between 
gravel with attitude and plants is quite difficult. Uh, what we're seeing here is, a, is making the dividing line between proper comets, where outgassing volatiles, which are normally stay nicely frozen in the depths of space, to things that we would normally uh, consider as uh, uh, dead rocks, outgassing uh, things we would normally think of as being rocks as it gets really close to the sun. So if TH27 uh, was found by Soho, Carl thinks to be classified as a comet. And uh, if 332p had been, been ground discovered at the same distance as uh, TH27, it'd be classified as an asteroid. Of course, as I said, comets are comets because they, they, they have volatiles that sublimate, evaporate, and these the, the gases that come off push off dust. Now, when you get close to the sun, what counts as a volatile becomes counterintuitive. Now, for our familiar comets, the volatiles are ices, and these ices are made up of our familiar water, our less familiar carbon dioxide, and ethanol, and a couple of other uh, a small amount of other weird things. So out in the distance of space, carbon dioxide is, is frozen, water's frozen, ethanol's frozen, and as they come in closer, the carbon dioxide begins to sublimate, then the water, then the ethanol. And so you have these things pushing dust off the surfaces of uh, the, uh, the comet and forming jets and forming these uh, gas tails and dust tails. Now with asteroids, most of their ices are gone. Asteroids uh, generally formed at a distance where you have uh, more, uh, more dirt than ice. And over time, the the heat of the sun has removed a lot of that ice. Yep. But they have other things which can become volatile. And let's take our, our friend Phaedon. The asteroid Phaedon, uh, people may be familiar with it as being the parent body of the Geminoids, and it's often called a rock comet because, uh, the, of, because of its release of dusty particles. So it comes uh, within 0.14 AU of the sun. It's a little bit further out than... 2021 pH 27. And what's suggested is what that's suggested is that the sodium, which is normally bound inertly as part of the chemical structure of Phaeton's rocks, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not metallic sodium lying around inside little pockets in the rocks. It's actually chemically bound in the rocks. Uh, is being uh, the rocks are being baked so much that the sodium is being released from its chemical structure fizzing from the asteroid rocks and into space. And so again, counterintuitively, rocks, solid. But at the distance from the sun, the stuff that's in these rocks, the rock structure changes and chemicals that were previously bound up in the chemical structure get released and fizz out into space. Now, is there any evidence for this? Well, the Gemini meteors themselves are known to be low in sodium. And what they think is happening is that as the asteroid approaches the sun, the sodium heats up and vaporizes, and that depletes the surface of sodium. So long ago, Phaedon's uh, surface sodium has, has blown off into space. But deeper within the asteroid, the rock heats up, the sodium is released from the rock, it vaporizes, fizzes into space through cracks and fissures, and, the, and these jets provide enough oomph to inject rocky debris off the surface of Phaeton, forming this dust, which we now will see some decades to centuries later as the Gemini meteors. 
Is there a colour associated with the sodium atoms? Yes. Sodium tends to be yellow. So uh, if you, for example, put sodium chloride into, uh, into a flame, it'll make the flame uh, uh, yellow uh, or yellow-orange, depending on whether... Depending on uh, how colourblind you are, for example, the, uh, the fog lights all along the road uh, just down, down from me along the, uh, the beach are all sodium lamps that have that sort of yellowy-orange light which cuts through the fog. Theoretically, they could do what they've done for mercury, which is to look at mercury through special filters which uh, filter out all light but the light from sodium. Seeing that the and thus seeing the sodium pale from mercury, and again, mercury we know that uh, that uh, mercury uh, is gets so hot that it the, the sodium is little ions are released from its surface and forms this long tail forming out into space. Yep. So again, this this year may be a good year to, to try and image the mercury tail of sodium uh, if you've got, uh, got sodium filters on your telescope. So, but again, coming back to this, this fizzing of the sodium could explain the uh, asteroids' uh, comet-like uh, features, uh, explain how the Gemini meteors be ejected from the asteroid and why they contain so little sodium. Now, they've also done lab tests on uh, meteorite samples and the lab tests tend to suggest that this mechanism is uh, is in fact plausible. Uh, they deplete the, depletes the sodium from the minerals in the uh, in the asteroid samples because the samples are too small to see the sort of cracking and and, um, and dust formation. But uh, you can show that if you heat them up, the sodium is released from the chemical structures of the of the rock itself and uh, vaporizes into the uh, into the uh, space around the uh, samples. So next time you see the the uh, Geminids, you can uh, think that these, uh, these these little bright specks of light have been pushed off a rock by volatile sodium. Uh, so and and uh, that rocks at, at, at these insane pressures and insane temperatures are doing entirely different things to what you'd expect from looking at a rock just lying on the ground. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's mind-boggling. You, know, you, you think about it, and everything about these things is counterintuitive. So you think comets, ices, heat up, ices come up. Yeah, rocks. They're just rocks. At the temperature, when they get so close to the sun, things that we think of as being inert become volatile. And so our nice little dividers between Comets, volatiles, outgassing, asteroids, rocks, they just sort of sit there, breaks down under these extreme conditions. That's great. It's, it's incredible. I'm, I'm still getting my head around it. Yep. <laughs> but it's, it will make the, it make the Geminids this year far more interesting. Yeah, look at them in a different light. Indeed. <laughs> I saw what you did there. <laughs> okay, well... Thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. We'll invite listeners to go and check out your blog, Astroblogger, and check out Ian on Facebook. He often posts some really lovely photos from his telescopes there, so 
check out Ian and follow him on various platforms. No worries. Come on over to see you there, and uh, let's have a look and have a look at some of my uh, photos. Not all of them are astronomical objects. Sometimes I post photographs of ducks. <laughs> very good. Well, enjoy September, everyone, and thank you very much, Ian. It was a pleasure. Good night, mate. Good night, mate. You have a good night, and uh, we'll catch you later on. And hopefully, uh, you'll have clear skies and see finally get to see Mercury. I'll do that. Thank you. Good night. See ya. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, but we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. In two weeks' time, we have a wonderful interview for you with Dr. Cherry Ng, who is an amazing researcher at the Dunlap Institute of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Toronto in Canada. For her PhD, she discovered an amazing 60 pulsars using the Parkes dish. She allocates time on the MWA, does fabulous outreach work, and is now discovering FRBs with the CHIME radio telescope in British Columbia. Cherry is also the project scientist for Breakthrough Listen on the Meerkat telescope in South Africa, as well as for upcoming systems on the Very Large Array. It's a fabulous interview. She's an awe-inspiring scientist to speak with, a lovely person. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave.